Thank you all so much for listening. This show has grown so much over the last year and a half. It keeps doubling in size. Now episodes are downloaded in over 60 countries around the world. Absolutely amazing. And one of the best ways that you guys can help this show is to write reviews. And I know it's a pain, right? But if you go on to um, Apple Podcasts, Library, Six Ranch Podcasts, you scroll down to the bottom, then you can rate the show and you can add a review. And for the next month, I'm going to look at all the new reviews that go in there and I'm going to randomly pick one of you guys and I'm going to send you a Sig Sauer Kilo 2400 ABS rangefinder. You can look it up. It's the expensive rangefinder. It's one of the best rangefinders out there. And it's what I use in competitions. It has a weather unit in it. Um, it'll give you a good ballistic hold for anything that you can range. And you can range stuff farther than you can shoot. I promise. Okay. Excellent rangefinder. And I want to give one away to one of you who reviews the show in the next month. Starting now, go. Anna Vorasek and I have had tremendous luck. We shot her caribou at less than three yards. Wow. I was right over her shoulder. And when she drew her bow, I fell back into the moss because we were looking at his eyelashes and she had nowhere to draw. And I saw it, read it, fell back. So, you know, and she's an accomplished hunter. Like she's notably one of the most accomplished female bow hunters in the world. And I think a lot of how hunting with her has taught me communication as a team. She would trust me on the species that I've guided with. And I would trust her knowing her equipment. And I think a lot of those, yeah, you you can agree with it. A lot of those super successful hunters that do it for the love of it. And because it's something that they just are passionate about. They also know that it's camaraderie in in the truest form. You have to be able to communicate with your hunting partner. These are stories of outdoor adventure and expert advice from folks with calloused hands. I'm James Nash, and this is the Six Ranch Podcast. The Six Ranch Podcast is brought to you by Sig Sauer. SIG is a leading provider and manufacturer of firearms, electro-optics, ammunition, air guns, and suppressors. For over 250 years, SIG Sauer Inc. has evolved and thrived by blending American ingenuity, German engineering, and Swiss precision. Today, SIG Sauer is synonymous with industry-leading quality and innovation, which has made it the brand of choice amongst the U.S. military the global defense community, law enforcement, competitive shooters, hunters, and responsible citizens. Sig Sauer is also a premier provider of elite firearms instruction and tactical training at the Sig Sauer Academy located in New Hampshire. For more information about Sig Sauer and its complete line of products, visit SigSauer.com. When is the first time you remember having a run-in with a grizzly bear? Oh boy. Um, a dangerous one. Aren't they, aren't they all dangerous? (laughs) (laughs) No, a lot of times bears are curious. Um, you know, and a lot of times it's just being cautious and being aware, but, uh, growing up in Canada, there's always opportunities with grizzlies, but I think probably the most memorable and one that I probably was the most aware of how insignificant and ill-prepared I was coming to a knife fight with a bear with only a pocket knife and a hay straightener 
Um, we were fencing when we were kids. I think we must have only been like 14 or 15, if that. And we were checking pasture on quad. And by luck that day, um, up in the North Country, it was just the beginning of August. So all the guys had trailed out to camp. And we had a few of the broodmares in. And we literally were walking down a trail. And for goodness sakes, I was so thankful. There was this old dog, Kokanee. He was a mutt dog, blue healer, border collie cross. And I remember being like, oh, wow, he decided to come today. That's cool. And I had a hay straightener and a pocket knife, like a buck knife. And we were checking fence. We'd only made it about 30, 30 yards down the fence line. And you get that innate feeling. I'm sure you've had it in the military. There's just a situation that all of a sudden, all of the hairs on the back of your neck and your arms stand up. And growing up in the North Country in the summers, we have a lot of elk. Uh, so it's nothing to like hear something crashing through the brush. So we naturally stopped this other girlfriend and I, and instead of crashing away from us, this noise is crashing towards us. And the next thing it happened so fast. I remember coconut darting in front of me, a big blur coming. When we paced it out and we kind of calmed ourselves back down years later, we realized that it was probably less than like 15 yards, but a grizzly, a big boar grizzly that we had notably called the Honda bear had rushed us. My girlfriend at the time, we were 15. I mean, I reacted. I thought I was going to climb up a poplar tree with my buck knife and was trying to go backwards. Because <laughs> um, I was like, don't run, don't run. Bear, tree, knife, hay straightener. Like I wasn't going to bonk it on the nose. Um, and my girlfriend just took off just a little bit over the bank. And I remember yelling and shouting and you're trying to stand your ground and you're also trying not to proverbially crap yourself because it was a huge bear. They ended up taking it years later and it was... SEI score it was right up there really yeah but um as far as memorable I I remember after that point we stopped we stopped just going around with a hay straightener um we uh definitely took a shotgun or a 4570 when we went fencing as kids but it's kind of one of those things that uh I've been very lucky I've had confrontations with bears walking to and from you know hunting areas when I've been out with clients a lot of it can usually if you're open and you're aware it can be avoided yeah. um if you if you know like when you're walking through the field it's like oh there's fresh scat okay let's stop and have a second because there's fresh tracks and the water's pooling in so maybe let's just give this bear time to move off it's a respect thing yeah i don't want problems they don't want problems yeah and, and that tends to be the case um and then every once in a while they just have a have a real problem you know they wake up with a bad attitude that day and uh and then you run into them you know, exactly right. a, a buddy of mine um, was fishing the Russian river on the Kenai Peninsula. Of course, this is a brown bear, but uh, he had just left the parking lot. Like he was a hundred yards down the trail and that guy got attacked by the sow, just blew out of the brush and, and mauled him. And um, there's two of them there. Um, his buddy like whipped this thing in the face a bunch of times with his fly rod. And uh, that didn't really do much, of course took off back to the parking lot and uh, the bear like tried to follow him inside the vehicle. And what had happened was some people had gone ahead of him and they're drunk and they'd split up the sow and cubs and, you know, they're like throwing beer cans at it and stuff. So, you know, they're doing everything right. They'd like, they just strapped their waders on, right. They're in the parking lot. Um, but that bear was already kind of preheated to 475 and was ready to go. <laughs> well, and that's the thing too, is that, you know, where that bear was, or we had that incident where it was very close call, there had been an elk that he'd killed. 
Yeah. So that boar was coming in defending his kill. Gotcha. Um, you know, so a, a lot of times, unfortunately, your interactions where it is a negative experience is where sows and cubs are involved and yeah. there has been separation or she's got a boar in the area that's super aggressive that she's having to really defend. Yeah. Or a lot of times they're young boars that are either, you know, too curious and they don't know a lot of danger or they're old boars that are just looking for food. I mean, yeah. we've had bears come into camp literally the poor buggers have no teeth left and they're eating the bread out of the friggin' horse panniers because they're just trying to put calories on on a bad barrier so it's for the most part you know it wrong place wrong time sometimes hey yeah no it, it it's totally the case um my my favorite bear story to tell actually doesn't even super involve a bear but i was working on uh on a ranch in Ovando, montana uh when i was in college and we we're calving out all these uh all these first calf heifers and we're having a lot of problems with calving and uh, lots of, lots of breach doing like a C-section every night. It was just a struggle, just a struggle. And in Ovando, there's a bunch of bears. And actually just a couple of weeks ago, a lady who was in a tent, you know, basically in town got dragged out of her tent in the middle of the night and, uh, and got killed by a bear. But uh, in this case, we had a bunch of really hot electric fence around the ranch. And I had, uh, I'd asked the, the owner, like, when do you start seeing bears? And he's like, tomorrow. Like, this is the day every year that we start seeing grizzly bears. It's like, oh, awesome. And then that night, brought in this first calf heifer, and she was having a fit. Um, I came back to check on her, and she'd broken out of the pen. And I found some bear tracks. I was like, oh, crap. So start looking for this cow. Can't find her anywhere. Look all night. And uh, first thing in the morning, I see this big muddy slide mark going down to the creek and then like this partying in the willows. And I was I was just so sure that that bear had killed that cow, dragged her into the brush and, and was eating her. So dumb college kid me decided to walk in there um, to, you know, try and shoot this freaking bear. And uh, I got in there and same thing. Like I hear the crashing, I see the brown blur of fur, you know, scooting past me and then this big crashing noise and it was a beaver dude. And I <laughs> came so close to having a heart attack because of freaking, and I was looking at a beaver slide and I ended up finding the heifer later on and the bear tracks were just, you know, a bear that was wandering through, but oh my gosh, I came so close to just, just, Straight up dying from heart attack by seeing a beaver. Kind of or an embarrassing start starting yourself a little bit too, I'm sure. Uh -huh. Hey, you know what? There's big beavers down in <laughs> <laughs> So what's the deal with uh, with grizzlies in British Columbia now? So unfortunately, due to a non-science-based referendum, um, they have decided to annul all the grizzly bear hunts. And they did it in the past. I'd have to check my dates to be exact, but it was in the early 2000s. Um, legislation through Guide Outfitter Association, we were able to fight it. We were able to have the season back for a few years. I was able to draw a grizzly tag two different times, three years apart, and I hunted to the bitter end. I could not will a grizzly bear. I was chasing their tracks. And the last time we had an open season for grizzly on our limited hunting draw for BC residents was back in 2017. Lord knows I put my trial in trying to get one. So maybe I've just come to the realization they don't hunt me. I won't hunt them. We'll call it good. <laughs> Keep an even playing field. But as of right now, in the forecast, there are no grizzly bear hunting 
in British Columbia. It's not even on the register, um, which is, is really sad, to be honest, James, because the hardest part is that now we're seeing more interactions with that younger generation of bears that are getting pushed out because they also, they don't have respect. There's not, um, there's a lot of legislation around, you know, if you should kill a bear or if you have a confrontation with a bear and, and there's so many rights to the bear that basically you either have to be chewed on or that bear has to have had his muzzle around the end of the barrel to, to kind of be, you know, on, have the government on your side. So, you know, as diligent stewards of the backcountry, we're trying to mitigate bear interaction, but you and I both know it's like having a bunch of critters running around that, uh, they're getting pushed out. They're getting uncompeted. Um, and now we're faced with a problem that, uh, it's become a passion piece for the rest of the Western world. The last place in Canada that you actually can hunt a grizzly bear is the Yukon. Um, so they, I mean, obviously they've benefited from it financially. They're also able to kind of manage their bear species where those bigger, older boars is what they're harvesting and what they're hoping to harvest that actually are responsible for killing a lot of the cubs. So it's right now, um, the Northwest Territories, they haven't had a bear season in decades. And we come to find out that uh, it was it was said to say that they were a spirit bear, but when you talk to a lot of the First Nations up there, they just they don't really go and hunt bears. So it's it, there's a lot of like miscommunication on kind of the importance of bears, the roles they play, and why why we should or should not hunt them without a science based background on the why you shouldn't hunt them side. <laughs> yeah, and it really does boil down to if you want more bears then get people out there killing boars. And if you want less bears, then get people out there killing sows. Exactly. Yeah, it, it's as simple as that. Um, it, it can get a lot more complicated than that, but those things are true. And they've been found to be true time and time again, whether you're talking about grizzly bears, brown bears, black bears, I don't care because a boar will kill the cubs to bring the sow back into heat so that he can breed her again, even if they're his cubs. Um, yeah. And because, a lot of people don't know that a lot of people don't realize that there is like a, there's like a pheromone or a smell that comes off, but they will just to get back into rut. So that's the hardest and most unfortunate part of this whole thing is that Disney and some of these other cartoonesque things have personified the bear to, yes, they are very cool. I have a lot of respect for them, but at the same time, they're still an animal that once we've started working with and we encroached on their country and we're trying to share it, it's, it's a very delicate dance. Yeah. And I don't even really buy into the whole, it was their country first. You know, a lot of these animals came into North America at the same time that humans did. Um, yeah. Like we, we shared the Bering land bridge together and, and came across. <laughs> yeah. They lived in the prairie more than they lived in the Rockies. Let's first, be honest. They were for sure. So this whole, like it was theirs first, I'm, I'm just not ready to drink that Kool-Aid and it inevitably, inevitably comes from somebody who lives in a city that is like the most destructive thing that you can do to a quality piece of environment is just cover it up in concrete and fill it up with people and vehicles and shopping malls and everything else. Like we don't need to do that. Humanize them. Yeah. Essentially it's humanize them. Yeah. But anyways, uh, what kind of hunts you got coming up this year? You've got kind of a, you've, you've got a stacked dance card. I do. It's actually, it's pretty selfish. I'm not going to lie. It's been. I'm so proud of you. Long, well, thank you. I'm literally sitting in a pile of all of my stuff. I've unloaded my whole first month's worth of stuff into 
this living room here and I'm kind of getting ready for it. But selfishly, I would be in the mountains right now, usually in a, in a regular year training, getting horses ready for the first hunt. And I'm doing it for myself. So I am going in for my own stone sheep hunt this year with a close girlfriend of mine. And then the rest of the season, if it's, if I've got tags for it and it's not an LEH draw, I am going for it. I've got a couple friends lined up that you get to a point where it's almost like a reset, James. Yeah. And I started realizing like some of the animals that are super important to me that I've really helped a lot of other people enjoy their passions with. It, it was kind of the right time, the right fit with the way that the border's been right now. Moose are really important to me and I'd love to harvest a really nice Canadian moose, a Rocky Mountain goat. I've got a tremendous caribou from the territories. And I mean, unless it's something like an absolute snowflake that's going to go walking past and just the right time, right place. Um, and an elk, something of which I have not hunted for myself either. I want to help you fix that. <laughs> I would love to help, let you help me fix that. I, <laughs> honestly, I think that's one thing that in any, in any profession, no matter how much you love it, how much it feels like Christmas morning when you're, you know, you're getting ready, you're doing your preseason prep, you're going through your meals, you're going through your gear, you're oiling saddles, you're fixing things, you're, you're buying last minute trinkets that usually you never end up meeting on the mountain. But, you know, some of those outdoor stores are really good at marketing. And there's something special about helping everyone else. But when you still truly love what you do and you make the time for yourself to go and do it, it feels that much cooler. I'm not going to lie. I don't know. It's like a rekindled appreciation for everything that I've ever done. And I'm the shooter. <laughs> I don't know. It's kind of, I, it hasn't quite sunk in yet. I still, I've never taken a season ever. I've been going to the mountains since 99 when I was a kid. So I'm going to age myself here. I'm 33. So what's that? Quick math, 12, 13 years. 12 years uh, to the mountain or 22 years holy crap yeah wow. a bit, bit north that of that awesome. <laughs> yeah i i was trying to do the whole you know play it cool thing and then i started realizing there's another decade in there so 22 years i've been going to the mountains and working in hunting camps guiding yeah. um and what species have you guided for i went with a theory if it's brown and it's down in the northwest um or if it's guided, white or kind of gray, <laughs> white, gray, brown, blue. Yeah. Um, I so Canadian moose, Alaska Yukon moose, mountain goat, stone sheep, doll sheep. I did guide for grizzly, black bear, uh, mountain caribou. I have killed a few elk for other people. Um, wolverine, wolf, bison. Um, who am I forgetting? I'm yeah. looking around the room here. There's a few. All of the things. All of the things. Not deer. I've never been much for deer, but okay. uh, hoping to remedy that. I just, I don't know. Well, moose, moose are deer too, you know? Moose are deer too. They're just big ones. Yeah. So yeah, that's, it's been a really cool, I came back from New Zealand um, in 2010 after guiding a few years and getting to guide over there, kind of partaking in the stag hunts for the roar, car and chamois. And I decided that if I was going to be an outfitter, I wanted to guide for some of the most prestigious camps and get a plethora of knowledge of what each of those good and well, I guess, noteworthy places had done right and the species that they were successful at harvesting. So that, that way, when the time was right, I had this knowledge to fall back on. Yeah. So 
Well, you've, you've got it now. You've got a tremendous amount of experience. And I think it's really, really important for guides to also hunt. And we don't typically get that opportunity. Same thing with fishing. I don't care what it is that you're guiding. You also have to do the thing because guiding and hunting are, are very different things from each other. And one informs the other for sure. But if all you do is guide, you can completely lose track of what the experience is like as a hunter. And then you're no longer able to communicate with your clients um, very well because you, you've lost touch with what they're feeling and what they're experiencing. So I think it makes you better professionally, but people don't usually get into guiding because they just want to get into guiding. They get into guiding because they loved hunting or they loved whitewater, rock climbing, whatever it is, you know? So I think it's great. And it, it's tough. Like this is your time to make money. And it's, it's, it involves all kinds of sacrifice to say, all right, this year I'm on the trigger. And uh, man, I think you're going to have a great year. I can't wait to see what you turn up. Oh, thank you. No, I'm, you hit the nail on the head as a guide and outfitter yourself. You get it. It's as much as you love it there are certain times in your life where you need a reset. And this has been a long time coming. Um, I've got some really good friends that I've hunted with or, you know, been in touch with over the years that we've just decided, you know, this is the year. Recently, I was just sitting there having dinner with uh, good friends of mine, Adam and Frankie Foss. And we realized it was four years ago that I went and killed my first sheep as a hunter, kicked myself a less than one club with Adam, um, a whole team from Sitka, and my dad and we the film hasn't been published yet it's still there's still some back-end stuff that we're working on just because of storylines but when I was sitting there on the floor watching it the other day it brought back so many emotions of what was happening four years ago where I was who I am now and I think that's what a lot of people they gravitate towards is the journey you know, the, the proverbial hike a mountain and carry everything with you is so metaphoric when you start thinking of your daily life, your job, your career, your family, everything that's going on, all of the influences that you have on a daily basis, and you carry those with you. And I remember at that point four years ago, I had had some very traumatic things happen leading right up until that hunt. And it almost foreshadowed kind of the next the next four years, which I find myself at now. And and kind of the personal growth I've done just as a woman in the outdoor industry, but more importantly for myself and different ideologies. I have different, uh, almost I'm trying to think of the word without misrepresenting what I'm trying to say, but there are certain truths I believed about myself on what I had to be earlier on in my profession. And one of the really cool and encouraging things that's happening right now in the industry is that you can celebrate being whoever you are, whether it's feminine, you wear mascara or someone who decides not to wear mascara in the hunting season. For women, it's kind of a big thing. Cause I remember when I first got started, it was like very much sexual taboo. It's like, you don't look like a girl when you're out in the mountains. And now, you know, you can celebrate there's women's gear and just, I don't know. It, it's been an emotional roller coaster for probably about the last few days since watching that and kind of doing a lot of digging onto what, what does it actually mean for me to go on my own sheep hunt? for myself again probably means everything and it's so hard to explain this um even to other hunters to explain what this means it's you almost get to the point where 
you kind of lay out the the framework for it and then you just look at them and hope that they understand and a lot of times we do but it's like speaking other language it's like you do the hand signals and you try and like <laughs> and then you're like okay do you understand and then there's like an awkward pause when you're speaking another language and they're like no hablo inglés yeah but because i think for each of us it's so different and i think that's the beauty of it that's what i've loved as a guide is that most of the time well 99.9 percent .9 of the time everyone is there for a reason and that reason's either very personal or goal-driven or a legacy that they want to fulfill it's got kind of a neat backstory and i love stories me too i think stories are great and i i grew up in this this cowboy western logging hardworking culture where stories were so important and and that was a big part of how people communicated and conversations took a long time like if you went to the feed store and you ran into somebody you were anchored in that aisle for 45 <laughs> minutes right and guess what? If you go to the next aisle and run into somebody else, you're there that long too. And that was just, that was an acceptable thing. And it was because people had stories to tell. And I loved listening to those stories as a kid. And one of the biggest reasons that I started this podcast was to be able to record some of those stories because I started seeing these old timers, you know, that I grew up with. And, and as I'm growing up, you know, they're at the, the back end of their prime, you know, they're, they're starting to fade out of whatever it was that made them, you know, such hard men and women and, and all the incredible things that they'd, you know, seen and done and told stories about. Mm -hmm. A lot of those people are gone now and their stories are gone with them. And uh, someday, mm -hmm. so, so will be us, you know, and, you know, we, we both, uh, you know, we, we lost our, our mutual friend, uh, Damian Pagano recently and gosh, his, his story felt like it was untold. It can happen to any of us so quickly, so quickly. It could be in the next moment. And I think that that's another reason why it's important to make these sacrifices and be like, you know what, this year I'm going stone sheep hunting. And it's cool that you have that opportunity. Uh, I, I, I can't say that. I can't be like, you know what, this year I'm going stone sheep hunting. But it would cost me both kidneys. <laughs> and I might have to sell the farm, mama. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, man. No, I think that's fragility of life. I Just to touch on that, and my heart goes out to Damien's family. He, he had the biggest smile and the warmest presence there at the uh, SIG 100 events. And I think if anything, God takes his favorites and if we can just remind ourselves that you don't know one day to another. And that's why we do crazy things like not go hunting for everyone else during the season or talk to our friends or make that phone call or do that trip. Because yeah. You never know. And I'm really proud of the hunting community for the way we've come together to, to support Damien's family. You know, there's been multiple funds set up, you know, one for, for his kids for college and, you know, one to help support, um, his, his family in this, in this time of, of great transition. And like, I just don't see that in other communities. I just don't. And there's not a lot of us, there's not a lot of us that, that do this professionally and, and we definitely stick together, but we also rarely get to see each other. I mean, I get, to, I get to see you like once every couple years at a show or something. And for about uh, five minutes, it's like, Oh, Hey, how's it going? It's like <laughs> friends. I think Cody Rich and I talked about that one time. It's like, you were successful, or how do we say it? Um, select exhibitionists. 
I think that's a very good term. We're select exhibitionists. We like to go and see our friends, power date everyone, and then we have a hangover for nine to 12 months until we go and do it for a week or three, depending on how brave you are. Gosh, the last time I left Sheep Show, I realized when I stepped out to go to the airport after, I don't know, five or six days or however long I'd been there, I hadn't been outside that entire time. <laughs> You know, I don't doubt it. Actually, I kind of have been been there, been there myself. Actually, it counts when you go from the convention center to the bus. <laughs> that is outside time. That is that is outside time. But usually, you're running because you're trying to catch a bus, or your friends are on a different bus, or you're sleeping because Lord knows, once you get to that Peppermill Hotel, there is no sleeping. No, definitely not. And time is irrelevant. It does not matter. Like, <sighs> no. yeah. They put that air conditioning in there. They have the bright lights, a few like bedazzly things. Gray Thornton gets on the microphone, puts you into a trance. <laughs> you're, you're done for. You might as well just write your life off. Yeah, I almost had to because I <laughs> got a little car- carried away uh, on on a bid for uh, for a Kate Buffalo hunt that I felt like was was pretty cheap, but uh, it was. I'm glad somebody else bought it. So thank you to whoever that individual was who saved me for myself saving one from oneself yeah that's a good theme for sheep week you know what it's gonna just touching on that when the border opens up and people are driving down even if they have sheep week next week or next year it's gonna be like college town like leave your ovaries or not your ovaries oh my gosh leave your (laughs) liver at home (laughs) i don't know maybe leave all your genitalia all your innards too because everything's gonna be hurting i tell you what like there's, I don't know. It's, it's like college. You just, you, you stand up and you say hi to your friends and there's going to be three years worth of stories that everyone's going to tell. Yeah. It's going to be wild. It's going to be wild. Okay. I'm going on my first, um, first moose hunt this year, Alaskan moose out on the peninsula, great big bulls out there. I am just beyond myself with excitement. What advice do you have for me? Oh boy. Shoot straight. Okay. Bring gear. Okay. <laughs> from what I understand <laughs> and the biggest thing is go slow yeah those big old moose like I mean the young bulls like they, they will travel I I've never hunted Alaska I've never hunted the peninsula I don't know what your resident pressure is going to be like or how many other hunters you're going to run into but one thing is for sure when you hit them right in the in the rut if they don't have cows man they will travel and find them yeah and there'll be a great opportunity but you'll never catch a moose. If he's rutting and walking, you either got to get in front of him and try and dissuade him and get your sexy cow call going um, and try and lure that big boy over, which, I mean, just try and act a little bit more feminine. Maybe don't twirl your mustache at him. Mascara. <laughs> mascara, that's, that's right. That, that's my time to bring mascara. It might not overshadow your mustache. You might be as well on that. <laughs> <laughs> that's where I was but, planning on putting it. Well, I mean, so funny story. And not <laughs> the boys like my first year up again I was cooking I was trail cooking and I did a couple caribou hunts and the boys found my mascara and they were younger like all the guys I was working with at the time were super young so they had peach fuzz those little pricks took my mascara and they wanded it in <laughs> on their facial hair and I come back into camp I can't remember if I'd gone hunting with one of the guys that day or what I was doing but I remember looking at them and there was like I won't be putting that on my face anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, I mean, if you need to darken in your ginger mustache, go for it. But boots uh, <laughs> aren't discriminatory. And anyway, um, so yeah, no. As 
far as that, I'm sitting and waiting. Like that's a lot of things. People, moose, moose can be pleasantly curious, but at the same time, if they've got cows up a drainage, I mean, unless you got the world's best cow call and you can get close enough to draw him out from his cows and he's not got one cycling right then and there, that's another way of doing it. But going in stealthy, I mean, a lot, like you think of those ears, they're about 12 inches or a foot long. And when they swing them forward on those paddles, that's like putting like a huge megaphone to the outside of our ears, right? So any little, you know, stump, if they're in the red, I've seen guys, you know, we'll beat them with a paddle or we'll have a log um, that we'll take and we'll beat a buck brush. But there's kind of, you can either be quiet and sneak in or you can walk like an animal towards them. Yeah. So I would be reading your situation and depending on what stage of the rut you're going in, just kind of playing your best card to your advantage. Early season, they're going to be up high still in the willow runs, especially if the bugs are bad. Like it's incredible to see where moose will go when they're pushing out that much velvet. I mean, I know what a mosquito is like on my arm. I'm swatting around. I, I couldn't imagine having this huge soft velvety mass above my head that the bugs are just swarming to you like a beacon. Yeah. No, the, I feel so bad for the animals in Alaska and, and Canada, like in some of those really buggy areas, oh. it'd be terrible. It just it would be terrible. Oh, I tell you what I've packed when I was guiding the territories, I guess I was there for six or seven years. Um, I had carried one of those little mesh bags that you put over top your hat. Mm-hmm. I'd never used it in the territories. The bugs can get bad, but they're not terrible. I went back to Northwestern BC last year and we got out of the pack graphs and it was about 20 seconds flat. And I was like, yep, nope, nuts to this, put that on. And I lathered my dog. Like I, you start going through some of that low moose country, man, where you've got a lot of standing water. Yeah. I will never make fun of those bug hats again. Yeah. That was my saving grace. So we had to wear those change in irrigation pipes as kids. Um, and it was full body and you ran still, because if that netting touched your skin at all, they could go right through it and and get you, but really it gave a little bit of offset. So their little proboscis couldn't get down into your skin. And, uh, no, it was, it it was wild, but, uh, no, bugs are no fun. And you just grab that irrigation pipe and sprint as fast as you can across the pasture. And, and then, uh, yeah, hope that you don't get suck to dry by the time it's all over with <laughs> we beginning of last year uh we camped unfortunately right beside a beaver pond there was no more days we could like there was more hours we decided just to make camp we're like oh we'll deal with it and i remember like doing a fool's errand whatever you do close your zipper at when you get out of your tent wherever you're staying yeah i went back we set up we went glassing i came back and there was this death cloud of mosquitoes in my tent and between Dolly and I, I was trying to smash things around. My dog's wondering if I'm trying to hit her and I've got clothes whacking everything. I smelled, I probably fumigated myself. I probably didn't feel right for two days, but I learned the hard way. You set your tent up, you close that mesh thing. Otherwise they're little proboscises. They're going to be tapping you all night long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, no fun. But another thing is going to be footwear. What, what time of year are you going? So. Remember? Yeah, it's going to be September. I'm going to guide a week of archery elk here and then go immediately um, to Anchorage and then um, mm-hmm. fly out to the, the peninsula and then super cover in the bush from there. But, Has it been really dry up there this year? Or are they? Because I know everywhere has kind of had a little bit more of a drier season from what I understand. Well, we're extremely dry here. It's it's super scary. I don't know what it's like up there. Um, haven't even really gotten into it yet, but no, it should be interesting. And, and we're going guided. 
Um, so I've got, you know, major advantage there. And uh, it, it's so funny to me. I, I hear such criticism for people who, who get guided. Um, sometimes they're like, oh, you just got guided. And uh, I know as a guide, it's like, I'm not that much of an advantage. And I definitely want to leverage that advantage, take anything that I can get if I'm going to a new place after a new species. Um, and I, yeah, hats off to the dudes that, you know, are hardcore, you know, solo DIY, lightweight backcountry, you know, brohemes, but, uh, like nothing against people that, that hire guides. I think that's such a crazy thing that we criticize people about. Well, and you have to think of it this way too. Like, a lot of the people that are, you know, anti-guide, if you don't have the time to go in two or three times to face the fact that you could be unsuccessful two or three times and you want to yeah. go and just do it right and learn, there is no shame in that. And it's just like hunting with a friend. Like if I come down there, you tech, you would be my guide, but you also have more knowledge of that area and your species. So it's like paying a friend to go hunting. Essentially. That's what I think of guiding. It's like, you know, you're sharing knowledge and you're sharing in the hunt. I'm not a dictator when I'm a guide. And I think that's where a lot of people, I don't know. Do you think it's like in that situation, people think that just because you're going on a guide, it's not your hunt anymore. Or do you think it comes from a different kind of mentality? I think it just comes from people who haven't done it, who haven't been guided before because they don't understand. And they think that since somebody's hired a guide, that the outcome is a given that it's now a hundred percent chance and that they're just buying their way into this opportunity and you know that that's not it you and I both know that that's not it I think something too it's funny you know people are like oh sheep look stupid you know I could go up there and kill sheep for myself and it's like okay well we'll give you a spot and scope we'll send you on your way and when you've got a band of rams that are moving and you're in the kill zone and you got to make a decision and you got to be able to age them yeah it's super easy to sit back and watch a Netflix show or a YouTube channel where they've zoomed in and micro focused on the actual horn of a moving animal and you got a narrative with a guide, but until you're the guide and you're making that call. And I think that's where maybe some of those people that are all taught become very humble. Yeah. As soon as you put them in that situation. I want to talk about humility. Um, I'm sure this has happened to you uh, because you've been guiding long enough, but I've had to guide a bunch of people, especially in fishing, but also in hunting who are better than I am. And oh. they, they've got, you know, twice as many years of experience hunting or, or fishing and, you know, fishermen who've been all over the world and straight up they're a better angler than I am. And now I'm in a position where I have to impart something to improve their experience. And for me, it's always been like, okay, well, you're a better fisherman. Um, but I know this river better than you ever will. And I'm going to help you with that. Like what, what do, what is it that I can still bring to it? And with hunting, it's, it's a wonderful experience a lot of times because now it's so much more of a partnership. Like we're, we're in it together. Like we're working as a team to get this done. And then with a, with a more novice hunter, you know, you have to do a, a lot more um, and they're learning hopefully as you go. And, and that's a great experience. But how have you handled that in the past? If, if you've come across somebody who has more experience than you do as a, as a hunter? I think like the first, the first five hours that you hang out with someone or whether it's trailed or whatever, you can kind of read people. You have to, as a guide, you have to be able to read people. You have to know, pardon my language, their bullshit meter of 
dead-eye dicks that can hike and, and, and camp and all this other stuff, but yet they really only have one hike in them. And it's not that mentally they've got hikes for every day. Right. But when it comes to experienced hunters that have hunted all over the world, you know, whether they've taken, you know, three or four slams or whatever, there's still kind of an unwritten vibe that they're trusting you to take them into the right area. They can make the hunt count, but they also, and they're, especially if it's an area where they've hunted before and they're coming back to you, it's very much working as a team. And I've learned that actions speak louder than words. And there's always an opportunity to be humble and quiet. And if someone's very domineering and forthright, almost opinionated to a point, a lot of times it's like, okay, well, if you feel we can do it that way, perfect, let's try. And then if it doesn't work, let's try it my way. You know, but when it comes down to it, the people that are largely successful aren't largely successful because they're jerks, if that makes any sense. They're humble. Yeah. A hunter, a hunter is humble, a hunter knows how to read the animals. I found that most of the people that are super accomplished also come with their own humility because they know as well as I do, you can be everywhere that the sheep are supposed to be and they're not there. <laughs> you know, and yeah. and so much of it is just working as a team with communication and you know, some people want you to hang back 20 yards. Some want you to be right there on the stock with them. And, and that's, I think I hang back more with like archery clients, for example, that I have seen them operate their gear and I trust them, but I can still read the scene because ultimately I'm responsible for how that plays out. Yep. So I had a, a guy on an elk hunt years ago that wanted to follow me from like a hundred yards back. And it, I, I don't know where he got that from, but I kept trying to like get him to come up there with me and I would wait for him and wait for him. And, uh, it, it was a really strange experience for me. And that's just where he was comfortable. You know, he wanted to be a hundred yards behind me, barely visible. And, uh, I maybe did my really bad ass. It could be. Yeah. Maybe it wasn't, <laughs> maybe it wasn't feeling, feeling right. I'm not that fast. So it wasn't a speed. <laughs> I guarantee that I wasn't walking away from this dude. And the thing I found, like, I'm sure it's the same with you. You have to travel, whether you're super fast or super speedy, you have to travel with your client because if you're too far ahead of them, I've had animals that just appear. Yeah. And it's like, if your client isn't right there and you're not able to calm yourself down and get them set up, Anna Vorisek and I have had tremendous luck. We shot her caribou at less than three yards. Wow. I was right over her shoulder. And when she drew her bow, I fell back into the moss because we were looking at his eyelashes and she had nowhere to draw. And I saw it, read it, fell back. So, uh, you know, and she's an accomplished hunter. Like she's notably one of the most accomplished female bow hunters in the world. And I think a lot of how hunting with her has taught me communication as a team. She would trust me on the species that I've guided with. And I would trust her knowing her equipment. And I yeah. think a lot of those, you, yeah, you can agree with it. A lot of those super successful hunters that do it for the love of it. And because it's something that they just are passionate about. They also know that it's camaraderie in, in the truest form. Yep. You have to be able to communicate with your hunting partner. Yeah. And, and you hit on something that I really firmly agree with. If you have one responsibility as a client, it's that, you know your equipment inside and out and are proficient with it. Like that's one thing that I cannot do for you is, um, is teach you your equipment and I'll do my best. If you don't, if you show up with a brand new bow or, or brand new anything and yeah, we'll, we'll work on it. 
but now really isn't the time for that. <laughs> yeah, that was six months ago. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know how many hunters I've had show up to archery camp and uh, I'll ask them how far they feel comfortable shooting. And they'll be like, oh, you know, 60 yards. Like, okay, well, let's step out to 60 and here's your one arrow and there's a elk target. Let's see what happens. And, uh, you know, what happens is we find out that maybe we didn't even sight in our 60 yard pin. It's still on the factory setting. So if I look at the pins and they're all gapped the same distance apart, I know that you haven't touched those. Um, so that arrow breaks and then we go back to 20 and we start over and we figure out where our new limit is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's one piece of advice that, uh, I guess it'd be 10 years ago now, um, 2012 Cameron Haynes, uh, came out and I was lucky enough to guide him on his archery bison hunt. And I took a lot of the archery clients for Sickening River and it was owned by Mike and Dixie Hammond at the time. Um, Mike thought I was crazy. I loved it because you got to get in so close and personal with these huge freaking angry bovine that were rutting. But Cameron took me aside and he said, Rachel, you always want to have a hunter that's not afraid to shoot in front of you. All guys will stand out there and say what they're good to, but it's the guy that goes out quiet that is always practicing. That's what he's like. I, I do that at every camp. I'm not doing it to show off. I do it because that's my job. I shoot yep. and I want to shoot well. I want to shoot well by the animal. And it just, you know, that's 10 years ago, earlier on in his career, but it's like as an archery hunter and a proficient archery hunter, it really stuck with me. So like you said, if I have someone who shows up, I, I got into archery originally to understand it. Now I enjoy it for myself. Haven't really had a lot of time to do it, but I can understand the fundamentals that can help them get into a better shot, but they have to be able to recognize when and where to take a shot. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. And, and when to draw, when to move forward, um, you know, hide in front of a tree, not behind a tree, stuff like that. That's uh, for people who have ever taken one of my seminars, they'll hear me say that like 15 times because I've, I've just, I've seen that one mistake blow up more hunts for elk than just about anything else is that people won't trust their camouflage and they'll post up behind a tree and then they don't have anywhere that they can shoot. It's like, just go in front of it and sit still and wait. And then you can shoot him. So hide in front of a tree, trust your camouflage. That's why we buy the good stuff. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. How many out of all of your elk hunters, here's a question for you. The ones that actually follow through, what's the percentage that you get guys that are there prepared, ready to go, you look at them and you just, there's a feeling you're like, yes, this guy's ready or this gal's ready. Do you find it's like taking more of a cult hit now or? Um, well, my hunters uh, are, are all repeat clients now that I've hunted, hunted with a lot. So it's rare for me to get somebody new. And uh, at this point, like we, we know each other and, and I know their capabilities and I have a good expectation of what they're going to roll into camp with. Um, some of them, you know, some of these guys will have killed more elk in their lives with, with archery equipment than, than I ever will. And, you know, they're really experienced, really proficient hunters. And then some of them, you know, they're mostly whitetail guys or they're mostly turkey guys. And, you know, we can, we can use that as a baseline and say, okay, this is similar in these ways and it's different in these ways. And these are the skills that you can take from the thing that you're good at but I need you to add these skills over here. And that's what we're going to be developing over the next week. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
you know, I, I really enjoy improvement. I enjoy progress. Uh, not everybody does. A lot of people are comfortable with where they are and I don't want to criticize that either. So if, if that's where they're at, then I want to set them up for a situation where they're going to, you know, see success within their comfort zone. Because mm-hmm. you have to visualize it. Like yeah. you actually have to visualize success. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, I've had some clients, um, some of them have been archery, but it, you know, when you're getting into the final under, you know, seven, 800 yards and you're in an open basin, like you have, you have to visualize success. What does successful look like in this basin? Do we need the sheep to do this? What do we need to do? Like, it's, it's like playing an elaborate game of chess or cat and mouse. And that, that's the fun part to me. Yep. I love challenge. I love, I love that side of it. Yeah. And I, and you have to have like, as a hunter and a good hunter, you have to have that desire to not just want to walk out and just fling an arrow. You know what yeah. I mean? Well, and visual visualization is, is so important because it's like practice, but the mistake that I see people make with visualization is that they fantasize also true right also true yeah and those are different things like dreaming and fantasizing that that was for a year ago now we need to visualize as accurately and as realistically as possible what this outcome might be like that's actually that's very good i mean i'd love to go dancing and skipping across and just like superman and, <laughs> and like be frolicking through the fields and and have it look really cool and have like a kapow sign but like yeah, uh, that doesn't happen. Last yeah. of the Mohicans. Yo, shoot, yeah. Like, come on, Last of the Mohicans. That's. I still haven't mastered that run where he's got like his hair flowing. I look like I'm. <laughs> I had the horses run away last year when I was working for Backcountry, and it sounds stupid, but like <laughs> totally off topic. But I had a cookie wrapper, and Connor Gabbett was uh, filming at the time, and he had been like giving the horses dad's cookies, and he'd been like crinkling the wrapper, and it was kind of like a running joke, and these buggers took off on me the wrong way away from where we were camped. And it was a narrow, like one pack horse wide with like little turnouts. Anyway, I had to like Daniel day, like Mohican, like run as my hair was flying, tripping over rocks, trying not to get sidekicked by some of these mountain horses that see me as an apparition in the dark. And I remember like, just thinking of like cookie wrapper. I'm like, this is not what they would do back in the day, but I'm like crinkling this cookie wrapper. And thankfully the lead horse stopped. And I don't know if I looked like a stranger or whatever, but I chased them back and I ran the whole way back. But anyway, it just reminded me because I was like running through the trees and I was like, well, I wonder if I look as epic as I feel because I probably look like a doofus right now. <laughs> anyway. I was guiding some um, backcountry uh, like horseback stuff when I was when I was first starting out as a kid and uh, this chick fell off of her horse and the horse of course was barn sour as hell it was a dude horse and it was heading back for town and uh i took off running after this horse and i had big dumb spurs on you know like a good dude guy ought to have as a 14 year old yeah you're rattled as big as your boots are then you ain't doing nothing that's right if you don't sound like a macarena every time you take a (laughs) step how do you expect to get a tip you know Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, so I take off running as fast as I can go and uh, finally catch up with this horse. And, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. Get the horse back and go to sit on my horse. And I was like, man, my saddle feels kind of weird. And those big rowels had completely raked, um, raked all the denim off my ass. 
So <laughs> I, just had, I just had my butt hanging out. Oh, it's so embarrassing. But I hadn't noticed when I was, you know, terrified for my life and job chasing this stupid dude horse Appaloosa down a trail. That's right. They paid for a show and they got one. But uh, yeah, no, it just, it's funny little things like that. I think that's in the backcountry. If you can't laugh at yourself half the time, at the time it was serious. I was like freaking out that I was going to lose the horses. And I was like, oh man. Anyway, <laughs> I don't know. It, it, those are the things that like make this lifestyle. I remember when I was a kid, like burning pancakes over the open fire. That's before there is like mountain house, really. I, like mountain yeah. house ground. I'm not that old, but we certainly didn't get it for uh, days that we went spike camping. Yeah. And my God, did I go through the pancake mix and the firewood. I learned a lot about that, but those are all character building things, right? What, uh, what advice do you have for any, uh, any gals out there that, that want to get into hunting or guiding? When it comes to hunting, um, I would just surround yourself with people that are nurturing, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. I know a lot of couples that can't hunt together. I know a lot of couples that can hunt together, but I think finding someone as a mentor that, isn't going to belittle you or make you feel silly for asking questions. Cause there's no such thing as a stupid question. And then basically building on your experience, I would figure out what species you want to figure out first and then just kind of start adding to your resume as you, you know, learn to kind of not master. Cause I think we're always getting humbled in the field just cause you think, you know, a thing or two, you'll find out real quick that there's a whole lot more to find out. Um, but it's funny, like I started guiding really before I ever hunted for myself because I just wanted to go hunting. Yeah. And I was very thankful. John DeVreeves, uh, he'd raised a couple daughters up in the Yukon. So I was a natural fit to go with him and he just started hanging back and letting me lead the stocks. And I think, you know, for any young guy, it doesn't matter where you're male or female. I've been around enough to know that everyone has their issues. There's always going to be clients that look at you and go, well, you were born in the last millennia. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, what do you know that I don't, but actions speak louder than words, keep your head down, work hard. And when you can put animals in front of people or try your best to put animals in front of people and remembering, I think the biggest thing is to slow down. Yeah. Not a race. It's the I, especially when you're guiding. I agree. Do you remember the guy that won outfitter of the year at a sheep show the last, I guess it was two or three years ago, but he'd been, I think we, we may have even been sitting together when, when he Art won that, that may be right. Yeah. I, I, I asked him uh, that night, what advice he, he had, you know, I'm willing to learn from anybody. And, uh, and this guy had just won a lifetime achievement award for, for outfitting. I think he'd been guiding for 40 or 50 years, something crazy like that. Mm -hmm. uh, he said, keep your clients warm and fed. The, those are the things that you can control. So I really took that to heart as an outfitter and, and I focused more on, on food quality and, and comfort. And then, you know, the, the animals are a wild card. They're wild animals. Like I hunting, I, not shooting. Exactly. I don't know what they're going to do. I, I do my very best um, to, to help that client achieve success the way they define it, not the way I define it, but and the things that I can control, I need to be really good at. Yes. And I would agree wholeheartedly with that. From an early age, I remember Uncle Darwin sitting me at the office at Scoop Lake and just saying, you know, watch John. Yeah. John is really good with customer service. At the end of the day, this is a customer service job. 
Yep. You're taking them on an experience that they can't find in the city dwelling in concrete anymore. He said, that's what we're giving people. We can control that. We can't control where the sheep are. We can't control where the moose are. Those are our wild cards. And I took that to heart at an early age. And that's one thing. Um, Harold Grindy, he won guide out for the year. Oh, freak, almost 10, 15 years ago or something. I had the pleasure of working for him. And to me, I've worked for a lot of great outfits. One thing I really appreciated, especially being on a horse crew, was you had good horses. You had enough diversity of the horses that most everyone could pack and ride, or you had hands that were good enough to help work with you on the trail on that. You had good food and lots of it because you work hard when you're in the mountains and you had good people that wanted to be there. Everything else, you know, you, you had good game and you, you hunted hard for it. But that's one thing that I, I cringe every time I ask someone about a hunting experience and they're like, oh, you know, the hunting was okay, but the food was crap or man, we were starving. And it's like, oof. From a customer service standpoint, those are things that you could have controlled. Gear you can control. There's so many good gear companies out there. It doesn't matter if you were sick or Kuyu or you know use a Mystery Ranch or Kafari or Exxon, whatever. As long as your gear works for you and you've got an opportunity to be set up for success, whatever success looks like, but you can offer an experience that these people are paying for because at the end of the day, if they don't punch a tag, they're going to remember if they had a good time and if they made new friends. And if they want to come back, repeat clients to me are the biggest thing in this industry. That means that you did a job good enough that not only are they coming back, but they're probably going to recommend you and they're going to bring other people. Yep. And, you know, I was just helping uh, a guy who's just getting started in fishing and he was talking about, you know, whether he should be focusing on new clients, repeat clients. I said, definitely repeat clients. And you want so many repeat clients that, when you get the clients that you don't particularly like, you have enough repeat clients that you can be like, no, calendar's full, son. Sorry. I don't know if you're supposed to say that out loud. I mean, it's the truth. Like most, most people are awesome. Like my clients are fantastic. I love these guys so much and gals, like they are friends. They're in my phone. We text each other and, and like they're friends. Some of them are in a different part of my phone. <laughs> God, I'm just like looking through on my phone. and like, does he have me in a sub folder? <laughs> no. Okay. We're good. Um, probably don't send those memos out in that group email where it's like undisclosed recipients. <laughs> the hell knows and the oh frick yes. Yeah. Um, no, I would agree on that wholeheartedly. That's uh, that's when you know you're doing something right. Yeah. Well, Rachel, I wish you the very best of luck in the hunting season. I can't wait. Um, I hope to get some some in-reach text from you at some point that uh, that tell me that you've just gotten your stone sheet. That would make me very happy. That would make me very happy to make you very happy. <laughs> no, thank you. I appreciate it. It's. Uh, it means a lot and um, good luck on yours. Thank you. And holy smokes, here we go. Look out 2021. All right. We'll be safe. Uh, oh, last thing, last thing. Uh, what can we do to help Canada? Because you guys have been on hard times as hunters um, during this, uh, this, you know, oh, whatever. I, I don't know. even want to give it a name. Hard times in Canada, but looking like you're going to reopen for vaccinated folks in August. Uh, what can we do? How can we help? August 9th. Um, it looks like this is where this is. 
I would love to say boycott the vaccine because that's where I stand right now because I don't think there's enough information. Um, but this is purely a personal thing. Um, if you believe in the vaccination and you can and want to go on a hunt, there are outfits that are willing, ready, and able to take you um, and that are going to be booking up fast. And I think that opening up the border for travel, as far as I understand, we're opening, but you guys are not. Okay. Um, Crazy. Support, support your tourism. Canada is a an estranged amount of our income comes from tourism. Our neighbors to the south, whether it's trade, um, ecotourism, or hunting, we rely on everyone coming up. So if anything, we've learned this past year that we really like our big brother to the south. So yeah, we'd love to see you guys' smiling faces up here coming on our trips and supporting our economy. Well, we want to support our, our socialist siblings to the north as much oh, as we can. <laughs> I tell you what, that's it. Cut the cards. Here we go. All right. Let me tell you, we're going to be moving ourselves south or inviting y'all up if Trudeau gets back in because there ain't no one west of Montreal that likes them. That's All my right. political statement for the day. Anyways. Okay, Rachel. Well, we're going to link everything uh, for people to, to follow you in this. And I encourage people to do so. And I thank you for your time. Thank you for your time, my friend. Good luck to you. Be safe. Okay, bye. I live in an old cabin with bad to non-existent insulation and wood heat. That cabin can see snow every month of the year and needs a good amount of firewood stacked in the woodshed to carry through the colder months. This spring, as my wood pile turned to smoke and ash, I noticed something metal pushing out of the decades of sawdust and bark. I kicked at it and unearthed a Stanley thermos. The cup was missing, and it showed more worn stainless steel than green. There were dents in the metal, and the handle looked like a puppy had chewed on it, but it still hadn't leaked the old coffee I could feel slosh inside. It took me back to memories of cutting firewood with my dad, waking up early for an elk hunt, or going out to the canyons to gather cattle. A Stanley thermos has the durability to survive whatever hard work you throw at it. You may find it carries memories as well as coffee. Learn more about their new and classic line of products at stanley1913.com or at your local sporting goods store. And catch you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share the show with a friend. You can also rate the podcast and leave a review. Your support allows me to keep doing what I love, which is meeting incredible folks and sharing their stories with you. For more content and photos, follow the show on Instagram at Six Ranch Podcast or me at Six Ranch Outfitters. This episode was produced by Emily Brannigan with original music written and performed by Justin Hay. Art for the Six Ranch Podcast was created by John Chatelain and digitized by Celia Christofferson. Tune in every Monday for a brand new episode of the Six Ranch Podcast. I'll catch you next week.